Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. Of course your spirituality is part of your music. That's hip hop. You know what I'm saying? You are being truthful to your experience. Got you know, it. that's what I was saying. There was nothing named Christian rap. That's how hip hop was. You you have to be who you are. So I I was telling the truth. You know what I'm saying? So in the songs that I was writing, some songs some on be a battle rap, some song be about love, some song be about the streets, some songs be about all of it. Some songs are just raps about raps. Like I didn't think about it until someone said, Right, are you a Christian rapper? <laughs> and in which I said, I don't know what that is. This is Where You're From, an origin story podcast at the intersection of faith and culture that digs into the influences and experiences that shape who we are today. Join us as we gain insight into the Bible's wisdom for all, regardless of where we're from. Hey, y'all, this is Rasul Berry. Thanks for joining me on Where You're From. This week, I'm excited to share my conversation with hip hop artist, poet, author, activist, and coffee enthusiast, Propaganda. Propaganda's life and art stand at the intersection of various cultures, which he slow brews into a potent blend that stimulates reflection and action. You can see we're going to be talking about coffee. You can find out more about Propaganda by clicking the link in the show notes or by visiting whereyou'refrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from.org. Please join me as I ask Propaganda, where you're from? What's up? Hey, homie, That's that question means multiple things where I'm from. You know what I mean? That's what we're here for. <laughs> Unpack that. <laughs> that's funny. It's like I hear, still hear it and still a little bit get triggered where I'll be like, oh, you mean location. Like, <laughs> <laughs> For those who don't know, it's gang talk. Usually when you say like, where are you from? They're asking like, what gang are you a part of? So that's where you hear like, yo, where are you from? You're like, oh, man, I ain't even here for all that, homie. And then you're like, oh. That's wild. So even the very word, the question can kind of take you to a whole different place. <laughs> always. To this day, I still flare like when people are like, yo, where you from? I'll be like, oh, man, I'm not even about that. Oh, wait, South Central. So South Central is the geographic answer to that question. Uh, Yeah, originally. Yeah, I was born in South Central Los Angeles. Uh, I consider birthplace. That's where my family of origin. That's where we kind of started. But um, I spent most of my Early childhood there, and then most of my like childhood, twenty minutes east of there in the San Gabriel Valley, little little enclave called uh, Valenda, La Puente, area called West Covina. I have to name all three of those things because they're all that are all the place. But yeah, six two six. And how did your parents or uh, your family end up in South Central Los Angeles? Um, my dad's family, they're all from Texas and around, you know. Into Jim Crow and the Watts Towers projects. It was offering housing vouchers. Come move west, you know. <laughs> and my great granny was like, I'm out. So my grandma and all of her siblings kind of one by one all moved to Watts, 
you know? Mm-hmm. And then we just kind of like became like a scatter plot around like Watts, South Central, Compton, Mid-City, Crenshaw, like all of that, just to live in a state that doesn't have any Jim Crow history mm-hmm. and you can own a house that ain't going to get burned down by the Klan, you know? So they, uh, they all came, you know? Okay. What about on your mom's side? My mom, they're all from D.C., like Washington, D.C., and apparently they're like five and six generations deep D.C., mm-hmm. you know, uh, and my mom, when she married my dad, just came. Got it. How did they meet? Dog, Vietnam. Really? Yeah. I'll unpack it, though. <laughs> my dad was um somewhat of a ladies' man, and he was bunked up with a dude from D.C. that was friends with my mom, and my mom was just writing letters to her friend, and then- my dad just saw her picture and was like, can I write her too? And he was like, yeah, go ahead. That's the homegirl. Wow. So she wasn't in Vietnam, but- No, she was in DC writing letters to her friend. Got it. And so he just slid in the- You can't even say the DM. He slid, the proverbial, yeah. <laughs> he slid in he the snail asked. mail. <laughs> yeah. He was like, yo, can I holler? You know what I'm saying? Man, that is really interesting to see that kind of connection happen via war. So then after the war, they connect- Met up, you know, they had already like forged a pretty good bond, got back. She went out to meet him. And if I may have some of this out of order or something, mm-hmm. but like from what I think happened, my uncle, my dad's brother, he died and there was a sort of funeral situation. And my mom kind of flew out to like help support, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? And my grandma was like, oh, she the one. Mm-hmm. You know, and again, my pops was somewhat of a ladies man. Mm-hmm. So at first he was like, oh, no, you know, she dope, but oh, no. And grandma was like, you bugging, you know, and he was like, yeah, you're right. So then, yeah, I think maybe a year or two later they got married. Wow. And so when do you come along in the picture? Oh, I'm like 10 years after that. So my sister was born first, like three years in. And again, some of this is like family folklore. I think there might have been a miscarriage between us. Mm-hmm. But then towards the end, there's me, you know, 10 years in. And I think I said it in one of my songs. Like my mom was, she was, she was going to leave my dad while she was pregnant with me. Because like I said, my dad was a ladies mm-hmm. man. So like she was about to be out. She said the Lord spoke to her. She was in D.C. She said she moved back to D.C. She was Gonna try it again. And she said, Lord spoke to him. was like, nah, you gonna have a son, you know, and he needs his daddy. Wow. So she moved back, you know? Wow. So you literally were a part of the story of your family remaining mm-hmm. in LA. Man, that's, that's deep. Yeah. So you said you have older sister. Older sister. Yeah. Okay. And then I do have another sister that passed away. Mm-hmm. We have two siblings that aren't blood related. Just my mom. My mom just took in kids. Mm-hmm. So uh, they ended up being our like. Sibling. She sounds like a really fascinating woman. I mean, oh, she's a G. Yeah, she's <laughs> Tell a, me a little bit more. About and both, like, both my parents are are freakishly interesting. My father was a Black Panther war vet. You know, what I'm saying, like, if I'd have read about my dad in a book, I would be like, oh man, I want to be this guy. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And what about your mom? Yeah. What, what should we know about her? Same. My mom is like my mom's probably why I'm still a Christian. You know what I mean? She's the she's the uh, living epistle. You know that everybody Mm -hmm. needs but yeah you know survived everything my parents split when i was 14 you know and she hit a deep depression didn't let it take her out you know and retired from the la county fire department she helped write the recruiting process for female firefighters wow like 
<laughs> my parents are incredible dying. Wow. Yeah. So and they both and they both were like like project babies. Like both of mm-hmm. them. You know what I'm saying? And they just figured it out, you know? So, you know, you mentioned kind of being born and living the first couple of years in South Central. Mm-hmm. Paint a picture for what those early experiences and memories were like there. Man, it's weird because it's like the height of like crack attack, you know, war on drugs, you know, Crips. I'm from the neighborhood where the Crips were born. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was kind of my little Wakanda, you know, like my grandma babysat us. She lived on 73rd of San Pedro and my uncle's mother lived about five, five doors down, mm-hmm. Kendall that braided our hair next door. There was the twins across the street, Dwayne and Dwight, but like, yeah, you know, it, for me, it was like, Mm. it was home, you know? Mm. And it was, like I said, it was just kind of, it was kind of all I knew. We left there. Like I said, when I went to the San Gabriel Valley, that was almost like a hundred percent Latino. And even the part of LA I was in was like the borderlands. So like, you know, we were on San Pedro, the next block over was Avalon. And once you cross Avalon, the signs are in Spanish. Mm. So I I had always kind of like lived in this like sort of borderlands until we moved to San Gabriel Valley, which was Mexican. So one thing that strikes me as you talked about your upbringing, like this this contrast between what was happening on a meta level in the neighborhood, the challenges that it was facing, and yet how you experienced it, like as just a kid, that's just like, this is home to me. So like, at what point do you start to realize, even though there's- Oh, this isn't normal. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I realize it. I think I have a song on it on one of my records. The song is called We Were Only 10. And I think I was I was about maybe eight or 10 years old when I did like not listen to grandma and go play at like the house I wasn't supposed to go play at. You know what I mean? And then they wanted to, you know, slide down the alleyway to go get some bag of French fries at the Golden Ox, which is just a little hood, like grease burger. You know what I mean? So when you come around that alley, you know, who's outside, you know, you slap boxing, having fun, whatever, right? When you come around the alley and then when they meet up with they homies, you know, and then the click clack pop the trunk, you know what I'm saying? And and then all the cuz cuz start happening. <laughs> and you start just that that feeling as a child, like, I may not, I may not make it back home. You know, like when it hits you like they signed up for this. Like little stuff, you just start noticing like, man, we this little and all the scars all over your face and your body. It's like, this isn't normal. Like you fell off your skateboard or just normal boy stuff. It's just like, nah, this is from like violence. So, so just to fill in the blanks. So you, you, you know, you kind of went into the elephant graveyard, so to speak, of you Simba, Basically. right? And yeah. you go and hang out with your crew. And you realize, oh, they're part of a gang that is into stuff. They you you pop the trunk and it's a trunk full of guns. You know, I'm, I'm ten years old. You like, wow. what is happening? Wow. You know, so for some kids that's exciting. For some kids, it's like, all right, let's go. You know what I'm saying? But me, I remember turning the corner and one of my older cousins kind of like looking at me across the street while I'm playing over there and all the rest of the family is across the street. They having a barbecue. They all chilling, you know, and my cousin just folded arms looking at me knowing, knowing like 
boy, you know good and well. Mm. You ain't got no you ain't got no business being over there. And I looked at him and looked away and they was like, he not built for this. Almost like he was smart enough to know that I was going to run back anyway, wow. rather than going across the street to get, and he from the streets too. So he was like, I'm not going to embarrass my little cousin mm. by going over there and just taking it. You know what I'm saying? That'll make it worse. So I'll just watch, you know, and show sure enough, I just did the little slow walk away, you know, from the alley, kind of walked back, went back across the street to Madea's house. And I remember him looking at me and just being like, uh-huh. And then looking away. And I was like, yeah, yeah he knew. <laughs> wow. So that was kind of an awakening to go, okay, there are a lot of beautiful things about my neighborhood and my community, but there's also some danger yeah. that I need to be aware yeah. of. So what was it that prompted your family to move from South Central? Tax return. Both my parents now finally had like a little more better jobs. We could be moved from like, you know, hood to like working class. Mm. And the possibility of like, you know, maybe buying a house and to get the geography well, like we're from the east side of South Central. 50s and 60s, the east side was like the hub of black L.A. You know, as time moved on, it moved towards the west side. That's when like the Crenshaw District kind of took over. But over there, there was a little more affluence. That was like black Hollywood, UCLA, like you know what I'm saying? They they were more educated, you know, a little more wealthy. And I, I mean, don't get me wrong, Rolling 60 Crips are over there. That's where Nipsey's from. Like, it's still wild. But the Crenshaw District for us was like, well, we couldn't afford to live over there, right? When we started to have a little money, they looked over there in this area called Lamert Park. My dad was like, man, I'm not going to pay what I would need to pay to live over there and still have bars on my window. Mm-hmm. I'm like, then what am I leaving? You know what I'm saying? So instead of going west, we went east, you know, still L.A., this little enclave, like I said, called Guascovina La Puente, like stayed over there. And since it was still full of gang violence, but they were they were Latinos. So because of that, for me, it was like we're recruiting stops. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It was almost like as violent as that neighborhood was, it was safe for me because like I'm not a part of this. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's crazy looking back to say that I was safer in a Mexican neighborhood than I was in a black mm, neighborhood. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, one would not think that, but that's just how L.A. was. And how old were you at this point? I actually don't know because even when we moved, both my parents still worked in L.A. proper. Right. So I was still dropped off in L.A. Okay. I still went to school in right. L.A. You know what right. I mean? Like, so I don't I don't actually know <laughs> five, okay. six. You know okay. what I'm saying? I don't remember when I stopped spending my days in Los Angeles. You know what I'm saying? Los Angeles proper. Maybe when I started school, but even then, all my memories are still after school going to my grandma's house. And so, and that's even helpful to know because it was all blurring. Like it wasn't just when you moved to West Covino that that was the end of your Los Angeles experience. No, it wasn't, man. Going back and forth. I feel like I was officially in La Puente when when I was a third grader. That's when I feel like I was officially there. Okay. You know, Cause it was like, well, now there's, now I have friends here, you know what I mean? And and I don't want to go to grandma's house every weekend. You know what I'm saying? Gotcha. So you mentioned moving to a place where the signs are in Spanish and that's the culture. Like that's kind of this interesting cross-cultural journey. That's just 20 minutes away. Right. Like that's just a a fascinating thing. But what do you remember your first impressions of essentially being in a cross-cultural experience? Man, I think it's so crazy that now as an adult, being able to look back and know the difference between like a first gen immigrant from Mexico and then like a Chicano, you know what I'm saying? Because 
our church was also Mexican. It was very black and Mexican, but they spoke English. They were Chicanos. Like they were like four and five generation deep, like, like Cholos, you know what I'm saying? Whereas I just remember like walking along the like LA river kind of like gutter thing and having just these little Mexican kids would just stop and stare. And I just remember thinking, man, they mama ain't teach them that it's impolite to stare. I used to think Mexican <laughs> kids stare. I didn't get it. And until I realized like, well, no, they've never seen black people. They're mm. first generation versus mm. Jason Rojas, who I went to school with, you know what I'm saying? Who was like, he loped up, you know what I'm saying? Jason Rojas gave me my first easy E tape. You know what I mean? <laughs> so to me, I'm like, they just like us, you know what I'm saying? Right. So I felt like this just, this kind of strange kind of kinship with them because it just made sense to me. You know mm. what I'm saying? I was like, I felt like they live in the same life we live in. You mm. know what I mean? You know, y'all family crazy, my family crazy. You trying to, you trying to run from, I'm trying to run from this. You know what I <laughs> mean? Gotcha. Now I want to circle back because you mentioned, you know, going to this Chicano dominated church, right? And you mentioned earlier that, you know, uh, your mom had a, had a deep faith. Tell me a little bit about that and when that became part of your story. Yeah. So I believe both my parents like became like big old air quotes Christians. Uh, cause they, you know, we black. <laughs> so they, you know, it's Christians the whole time, you know what I'm saying? But like they became. I want to say when I was, you know, pretty young, like in elementary school, and then we landed at this church and um, that, that, you know, I think that happened at a little church in Inglewood. And then- um, And just to to clarify, we like, we black. So essentially there is a cultural just- Yes, that's what I mean. in aspect of church, big mama, prayer, you know, that's just unescapable in the black context. So in that sense, many people would identify, but you're saying something happened- you know, that where it became a vibrant part of the family when you were in elementary yes. school. Okay. A family dynamic yeah. that like, yes. My dad got two uncles that are preachers in Compton mm. and then the rest were criminals. You know what mm. I'm saying? Like, so we had a family church. Yeah. They became born again believers in elementary school. So at that point, we became like active members in a church. Now, a lot of this, again, because I'm the youngest, like I didn't really know or appreciate sort of the kind of the battles that my dad was going through in him sort of like really becoming the man he is now. You know what I'm saying? But at the time, you know, he was, he was still kind of kind of in the streets. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I could speak a lot more graciously now mm-hmm. about it. Like if you'd have done this interview 10 years ago. I'd have had a lot more ire, but I get it now. You know what I'm saying? That it's complicated. So I would never doubt his salvation or his faith walk. It's just, you know, <laughs> it dies hard. You know what I mean? So I don't know if it was a Christian home, like somebody who would, you know, have a subscription to the Daily Bread would call a Christian home. But we we knew Jesus was Lord. You know, we read our Bibles. We was at, you know, prayer service. But I think there was... A element of like we're gonna we're gonna try to do this right, you know, mm-hmm. in our home. And for you, was that just like okay, I'm just gonna go with the flow of what parents are doing? I mean, and- it is what it is. Yeah, you just yeah. didn't think about it. You know what I mean? I right. think um, middle school was when I was like, all right, this is mine too. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I feel like my church experience was so unique <laughs> in that, like, 
And I, I realize now looking back, like, I feel like I've been trying to recreate that, that experience at every church I went to, you know, and just, I don't know if part of it's nostalgia and just, you just remember stuff differently. But like the guy that essentially led me to Christ is like ex-con, you know, like <laughs> a Latino dude from the streets, you know what I'm saying? Like our neighborhood, like weed pusher went to my youth group, you know, they were these graffiti artists who now I know are like legends. They were like the big kids at our church. We rode skateboards. Like we were just, we were LA kids. You know what I mean? Mm. And for us, it was like, you ain't got nobody pregnant. Great. You're not out here shooting your neighbors. Great. You know? So, so for us, it was like the situation was so dire that again, like a lot of the, you know, things that one would think would make you a church kid. We was just over that. You know what I'm saying? It was like our experience was so mm-hmm. intense that it was like you was really leaning on grace. You feel me? So um, mm-hmm. what's hard for me to say like, yeah, we went to youth camp, but we banged on the other church because they was from the other part of town. You know what I'm saying? So wow. we ended up being like gang stuff. You know what I mean? Wow. Like at youth camp. You know what I'm saying? So it was like I just had this this other kind of experience. But that being said, I don't have that like dividing line moment. Yeah. You feel yeah. me? Yeah. And I, and I think I always try to ask it in such a way that is not assuming Paul on the, the road yeah, to Damascus yeah, yeah. moment, because sometimes it's more of a Timothy yeah. situation. Like Lois and Eunice was raising you up in this thing since you were yeah. in diapers. And so you yeah. kind of more matured into it. And each way is, is, is beautiful. And in fact, you know, I remember uh-huh. uh, Truth uh, did that song many years ago. I was talking about my testimony is no horror story. You know what I mean? God kept me yeah. in my youth. I give him all the glory. So there's that. There's mm-hmm. something to be said about that. But the thing I'm really fascinated about is when you talk about this becoming your own in, in a way in which meant something more than just going to church with the parents in middle school. That would seem to be when you're also being forced to make some really important decisions and yeah. when, like the world around you is coming for you to make a decision. Yeah. Did you feel some of those tensions? Yeah, of course. You know, a lot of it was around like, what's going to be like my, like my sexual ethic, you know, how do I want to carry myself in this world? And I think some of it was like, you know, if you can find like a decent enough tribe, it'll keep you safe from so much. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I think there was that warm blanket of being like, I have a thing, you know what I'm saying? Like, and a lot of the things that I'm interested in, those dudes go to my church, you know? Mm. You know, I was in the hip hop, you know what I'm saying? Those guys were at my church. So I was able to be like, well, I can spend time there rather than running the block. And I, and they were like close enough, like they lived close enough to my neighborhood and they was like, they were like thorough dudes too. You know what I'm saying? So you didn't feel square. You feel me? So I think like, I didn't have to feel square. Like I was missing out on nothing. It was more like, dude, I I got my click. You know what I mean? So you go to the San Gabriel Valley and like, how do you pick up Spanish and how do you become fluent in it? And how does the, the culture that you're around begin to form you in some maybe even unexpected ways? That's good. Yeah. Well, you want friends, man. (laughs) <laughs> like if you if you want friends, you better pick it up, you know. And secondly, if you want to date, you you know the girls. Like I'll be honest with you, like that was one of the biggest motivation was like, have you seen a Latina? You know what I'm saying? I was like, uh, what do I need to do? 
You feel me? So, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm being a little funny, but but as a child, it was like, yeah, this is what I was around. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's just like the thing I, I, I hear from you is like growing up, like you were dropped into another culture. dropped into this place. Another, yeah. <laughs> and it's like just any, like anybody else, if you want to ki- get connected and be a part of that experience, you got to learn the language and learn You got to learn the language. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of what happened. You know what I'm saying? Like, little did I know I was going to marry like a first gen Mexican woman. You know what I'm saying? Like, I didn't know that, you know, but at the time it was like, man. And what's crazy is like, there was a young lady I was engaged to in college and she was Belizean. So she was black, but her grandma spoke Spanish. You know what I'm saying? So it was, it was just good that I knew because I was from this neighborhood, like I could still communicate you know, they spoke a little Patois, a little bit of this, but just, again, having this fascination, which is multiculturalism. And I think part of that, again, was just growing up in this like Latino hood, mm. you know. You know, and I think that's something that for those that are familiar with your work now or just even in the last decade or so, like you peer into culture, you think about it, you you analyze it, you you express it and explain it in ways that are very thoughtful and insightful. And I guess I'm kind of curious, well, where do you think that came from? Like, like that interest and that desire to, you know, um, really understand and explain it. Yeah, I think the original spark, you know, it really goes back to my dad and the bedtime stories that I got were not the bedtime stories everybody else got. You know, I mean, I'm like ten buck two road poster on my wall. You know, three kingdoms of West Africa. You know, Ghana, Mali, and Songhai. Like you know, having to know these things because that's what my father would teach me. You know what I'm saying? That photo of when Martin and Malcolm met was like, right when you walked out of our bathroom, it was right on the wall. You know what I'm saying? So I had already had this idea that like the world was so much bigger. But like I said, this was my Wakanda. You know what I'm saying? So it was, it was a very black world. So you come home to that, but then go outside and everyone's speaking Spanish. And then I even tell you this, Rico, and then there was these other Mexican dudes who talk like black dudes but looked Asian. Turns out they were Filipinos. Like, I I didn't know what a Filipino was, but it turns out they lived in the same neighborhood too. You know what I'm saying? So you just, you're having these experiences where it's just so fascinating. Mm. Then you go to the skating rink, you meet this curly head black dude who's a little bit light-skinned. Turns out he's Puerto Rican. And I'm like, so what are y'all? What they, well, you're, y'all black. Well, we're Latino, but, but you black though. But yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's like, well, how did y'all, how do y'all do that? How'd you do that? You know? <laughs> so it just sparks such a curiosity because you're exposed to so much. And then when you go over to their house, it's like, oh, I'm going to go have, you know, I'm going to go have dinner at Junior's house. Mm. Junior eat rice with everything. and But it's not like the Chinese dudes. It's a little different. Mm. You just get curious about that stuff. Mm. And then finally, I went to, when I was in high school, really, uh, I got to credit Mr. Jeffrey. You know, he had a, a club, like a little after school club called Socially together and naturally diverse. And it was about multiculturalism. Mm. And I think what's interesting, I had been so comfortable with my blackness. I loved it so much. I don't have this like identity crisis in the sense that a lot of people would. Of course, I got teased. Of course, I got, all, you know what I'm saying? Being this black kid in this Mexican neighborhood, people, you know, I had my moments where I came home crying, but it was more in the sense that like, I don't understand what you don't understand. Mm. I don't know why you don't see this as beautiful. Mm. And I thought maybe if I was Puerto Rican or Dominican, I could still be one of y'all, mm. but still be me. Cause I don't ever want to not be black, right. but I wish you accepted me. Mm. You know what I'm saying? I think 
it was easier for me to explore the world because I love my blackness. I wasn't trying to tamp anything down. I didn't wish to be something else. I was like, no, I love this. I'm comfortable with me. I know I know what I bring to the table. Mm. I find it fascinating what you guys bring to the table. Right. You know what I'm saying? And I think it's dope, you know? Yeah. How do you think growing up in this incredibly eclectic, culturally diverse, dynamic culture helped you to see the story that God is telling in the scriptures about the beloved community even more intently? Man, how would I say this succinctly? <laughs> it's a lived experience. It's like there's there's no linear sort of connect the dots type right. of way. It's like a deep soak. You know what I'm saying? It's like it's almost like sunbathing, where at some point you realize, wow, I just got my whole body is darker. You know what I'm saying? You submerge into it. And I felt like as I'm reading these stories, when you understand and are okay with the idea of culture, I think that that might be it like. I understand my culture and what culture means and how that shapes who I am and how culture is made. So as I'm reading the scripture, I'm like, oh, I'm reading a culture. Like this isn't, hmm. it's not, that doesn't make it any less divine. Actually, to me, it makes it, it makes hmm. it more real. And it's informed by this particular story, this particular narrative. You know what I'm saying? There are things that, you know, me and you can say knowing like, I never met your mom. I never met your granddaddy. I don't know your past story, but there are things that I could say to you right now on this thing. You know exactly what I'm talking about because it's culture. You feel me? Like, right. so that type of kinship goes beyond genetics and DNA and even geographical location. It's just, I know my kinfolk when I see it. And once you kinfolk, there's nothing you could do about that. Don't nothing change that. You know what I'm saying? Family is family. I'm a ride for you regardless. So to me, that made sense even on on like the hood level to where it's like, my folks is my folks. And you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm going to defend this dude no matter what. Why? Because he from my hood. So to me, it was such a logical, of course, when it came to the beloved community. Well, I'm just like, that's just my folk. And it's almost like, this is what Christ is trying to say. It's like, fam, this ain't no empire, man. Like, y'all not y'all not conquered, homie. Like, we, this a kingdom. Like, you a part of this. I love this. I love this. Because I think if I'm hearing what you're saying, when Jesus is breaking down in John 13, for example, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, yeah. so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's like, Simple. of course, that we are a set. We are a group, a community. Yeah. And there's a certain distinction about us that we all share. But of course, that's going to be open to whoever shares that same distinction, love for one another. So somehow it was, of course, because that was what you grew up seeing all around you. That's what I experienced. Whether it was hip hop, whether it was urban, whether it exactly. was whatever. Of course, give or take a few things. I could walk into sure. any state, anywhere, any city, and get to some sort of hip hop or open mic event and know exactly what to do, feel right at home, and they wouldn't know no different. You could pull right. up to the side of the road anywhere at anybody's family's barbecue, cookout, anybody's family yeah. reunion. Nobody would know you're not related. Because you just know what to do. Right. You know what I'm saying? So it's right. the same with the faith. At least in my mind, I was like, oh, that's what you mean. Right. Yeah. And there's something really dynamic. And I guess this is part of how I experienced you as an artist too. 
you have this way of taking seemingly complicated things and mm-hmm. making it sound accessible and sensible to be like, of course, <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, uh, man, I appreciate uh, that. Yeah. I mean, just think about what you're saying. Like you're talking about something that the church and believers in the world in general, inside or outside of church has struggled with literally since we got here of like, how do we frame community and, and, and embrace other people and like yeah. and that Jesus clarifies in this very dynamic way in the book of, you know, yeah. what we see in the book of Acts in like this multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multi-cultural, multi-socioeconomic community that is bound together by love that is transcendent yeah. that we get peaks of in different ways, whether that's fraternities, like you mentioned in the song, yeah, or yeah, yeah. gangs yeah. or whatever yeah, else. Yeah, yeah. But those are pale, distorted imitations of the real thing but you see in the real thing the fullest expression of those things that you saw glimpses of of how people as you say use culture as a mechanism to survive yes nailed it and that's you're fully known yeah (laughs) Yeah, okay cool thanks man yeah you're fully yeah you nailed it it's like you're fully (laughs) known and you're fully loved the way that jesus invites people in continually opening his doors wider and every time we go well, maybe not them. Like, as just the story of scripture is is Jesus being like, nah, them too. So to me, I'm like, when I follow that tradition, the tradition of no, them too, I feel like now I'm moving more towards that beloved community, that 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 moving in love. Know me by hmm. my love. So let me ask you this, because oftentimes I find that people who have some sense of clarity on something like that of of that of a certain value. So in this case, the, the inclusive nature of love, it's often because they've experienced the opposite, the the sense of exclusion in a way that causes them to have this clarity to Facts. go, the world needs something much different because I needed something much different. Can you think Facts. of a time that that pain and that sharpness of exclusion hit you in a certain way? Yeah, you know, back to like the childhood of being like, the only black kid, you know, mm. where there was moments where I definitely felt left out, whether it was purposeful or not. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes it was, sometimes it wasn't. You know what I mean? I went to high school in the burbs. I got bussed out to a high school that was incredibly diverse, but it was definitely white dominant. Where you're just like, it takes a while to find a place to feel welcomed because whether purposeful or not, you know the rejection. You know what I'm saying? And then as I became a professional artist, my own church folk being like I wasn't Christian enough my theology wasn't right like I wasn't I wasn't Christ-centered enough you know (laughs) like someone even said like that's a direct quote someone even saying that you know what I'm saying because I could walk right now to that corner bar and they would know exactly where I stand you know what I'm saying and would have much less objections and fences around what I'm saying than you do and you supposed to be family and then just good old fashioned racism, you know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> that I feel like we all experience, you know what I'm saying? But I think once you start seeing that, I refuse to perpetuate that to anybody else. It's an interesting question because it's a grid. I run a lot of like my own statements and statements of others through where I'll be like, when they'll make a statement, make an argument, and then I'll think to myself, was that ever said about me? Was that ever said about black people? Well, it's fine for them, but I don't want my kids exposed to, I don't need to be around it. 
I mean, it's okay. You can make whatever choices for you want, but I don't need to be around it. And you shouldn't make my children. It's like, wow, you used to say that about black people too. You know what I'm saying? So I'm like, so to me, if, if I'm like, if an argument sounds like the same argument that excluded me, then I'm like, maybe I should throw away that argument. You know what I'm saying? And then for me, like, it almost makes me turn up and be like, okay, I'm a pursuit in people then. When we come back, Propaganda will share how he found his path out of the danger and violence that surrounded him through a different kind of fighting. That's coming next on Where You're From. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. What's up, Where You're From listeners? You like free stuff, right? Well, check this out to hear how you can get my favorite set of earphones, Power Beats Pro. I use these when I work out, cook, and when I'm listening to my favorite podcasts, like Where You're From. How can you enter to win the giveaway? Simply fill out our brief survey by clicking on the link in the show notes. Once you do that, you're entered to win. It's just that simple. So won't you do it right now? You'll have until November 7th, the day of the last episode of season five to enter. Thanks for listening to Where You're From. Peace, y'all. Hey, y'all, before we get back to our conversation with propaganda, I wanted to share a quick teaser from our next episode with author and apologist Justin Briarly. This is where you're from. One of the things that shone through for me was the privilege of being able to see the way Christianity lifts rather than crushes different cultures around the world. In its best forms, Christianity can liberate and bring out God's diversity but sort of in a way that honors and transforms people where they are and the culture that they're part of. Now let's get back to our conversation with propaganda on where you're from. Okay, so to pull a page out of Brown Sugar, when did you fall in love with hip hop? Woo! <laughs> Man, I love it. I would say my sister had a sleepover. It's funny how it starts like that. At I want to say it was her 16th, I don't know, maybe. Something like that. But anyway, back when you rented movies, they rented uh, Beat Street. And then after that, they watched Breaking 2. So they watched mm. those films. You remember Breaking takes place in LA. You know, it's supposed to be Venice. It's really Boyle Heights once you know what you're looking at, but it's supposed to take place in Venice. And I remember looking at it from the kitchen table and like knowing that this is like our neighborhood. My dad used to take me to Venice for his like a little father-son kind of bonding thing. And I remember seeing what I was seeing in the movie at Venice Beach and just kind of being like, oh, yeah, I want to do that. Mm. Like, is that guy spinning on his head? Like, what is that? You know, it was like, whatever that is, I want to be that. You know what I mean? And some of the, like, scenes of the L.A. River, for you guys that don't know, the L.A. River is it's completely paved. It's a storm drape going into the ocean. Right. Yeah. All the scenes in movies with like car chases when they're right. that's the L.A. River, you know, the big bridges. Those are always covered. They're blanketed in, in murals and graffiti. And just, you know, you were looking at that out the side of the back seat 
they're larger than life. And you're just like, someone painted that. I want to do that. You know, you'd be excited about like the next week because it would be painted over and somebody else did a new one. And you're just like, this is the dopest thing I've ever seen. You know what I mean? So that was it. I was like, yeah, nah, this is it. I want to do this. And then I think in high school, I remember like the little freestyle circle. I was like, I'm getting in. And the first moment you like murder that thing, you murder that cypher, you like, oh, it's over. I could do this. So yeah, I was going to ask, that was going to be my follow-up. Well, I guess it's two parts. When did other people start to see that this is a core part of who you are? I mean, everybody knew like from day one that like there was a, a penchant towards like the stage and towards the arts, like really young. And then, you know, obviously with the graffiti stuff, it was like, that's what you're doing. You know what I mean? Mm. High school, like, was when the mic happened. And it was just, you know, you're consumed. Like, if anybody, you consume enough rap, you're going to start rapping. You know what I'm saying? And at least try, you know? Exactly. Which I think a lot of a lot of times, what's to sound like an old guy, but, like, what's missing is that, like, immediate reaction from being in person. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So when you're in person, you're at the lunch tables, and you get that immediate, oh! It's like, oh, yeah, it's over. There's like, shoot it in my veins, bro. You know, and I know that like, you know, you prepare for it. You know, I'm walking to school. You know what I'm saying? I'm like rehearsing little like, you know, things and stuff like that. And then when it finally go down and you get that that crowd reaction, yeah, that's it. You're like, oh, oh, I'm doing this. Then the battles happen. Then once you start battling, it's like now that like just testosterone starts like coming in and the adrenaline of like, oh, I'm not losing. Once it becomes competitive, oh, it's over. I was like, yeah, I'm doing this. Okay. You yeah. know? So let's lean into that a little bit because I think that becomes part of the world's introduction to propaganda in a battle rap context. The battle but, rap stuff. Yeah. But like, what would you say for those who are the uninitiated, right? Mm-hmm. Especially as I'm thinking about battle rap in the context of the battles that are happening around the community and the neighborhood, what's the significance of this particular art form? Oh yeah, and just give us a glimpse of what it means and what it doesn't mean. What might it might look like from the outside to the uninitiated? Well, generally, it's like there's no guns, and that's the that's the best part. You know <laughs> what I mean? Especially around this time. You know, culturally speaking, L.A. is so interesting in the sense that maybe, again, for the uninitiated, but Doggy Style, Snoop Dogg's album, came out the same year as The Far Side's Passing Me By, you know, and these represents two different types of Los Angeles Mm -hmm. that both were happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? You know, if you don't know, the far side is this this super creative, eclectic, like just L.A. underground while gangster rap was happening. You know, you have the Snoop and the Dre's and then you also have the Good Life and Project Loads. You know what I'm saying? So you have these two different experiences all in L.A., you know. So where we come from those types of neighbor, we come from those streets, but like we just found other outlets and we're still teenagers. There's still testosterone coursing through our veins and a way to have a creative outlet that still had the adrenaline, had the aggression, you know, but there was a, a mutual respect and an understanding. It would be similar to having like community boxing rings, you know what I mean? Where it's like, yeah, if you guys, you guys got a thing, will you take it out in the ring? You know what I mean? Whether it's, it's a relatively controlled environment, yeah. you still, 
you're still getting it on, you know what I'm saying? There's still, but there's still rules. And after that, we can hug it out. In a lot of ways, battling became that. Mm. Uh, ways to rep your turf, you know what I'm saying? But there's rules of engagement. Again, we all get to make it home after, mm. you know, and there's a little bit of a mutual respect. It's like, you bring your best, I bring my best. And if I win, that's it, mm. you know, or like come back next week and try it again. You know what I mean? And those things helped. And then obviously, you know, you get hot heads here and there or fights will break out here and there. But again, it's like, we're not dying. Mm. Yeah. And that's great. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's an important context that I don't think I even fully appreciated when it was just something that we did. Like, it was just like, yeah. you know, all right, let's do a battle. Let's do a cipher. Let's see who comes out. But then yeah. I think as you get older and you can look at it with perspective, you can go, man, that was something beautiful that was somewhat of a safe environment for us to channel the sense of being challenged, yeah. but in a creative artistic way, like you said, in which everybody yeah. comes home. Yeah. It's hindsight. Yeah. Like you don't, you don't know that when it's happening, when it's happening, you're nervous. You know what I mean? Right. At what point, if there is a point that you begin to think about this from the standpoint of like your spirituality is informing your approach to your art. Dude, see, that's where it was so interesting to me that I think is the difference between our experience out West and everywhere else was because your spirituality is always a part of hip hop. Right. Like you ain't never heard of Tribe Called Quest. Like you ain't never heard, like you never heard of Wu-Tang album. They're five percenters. You know what I'm saying? So right. in my mind, of course, your spirituality is part of your music. That's hip hop. You know what I'm saying? So you are being truthful to your experience. Got you know, it. that's why I was saying there was nothing named Christian rap. That's how hip hop was. You you have to be who right. you are. So I I was telling the truth. You know what right. I'm saying? So in the songs that I was writing, some yeah. songs some on be a battle rap, some song be about love, some song be about the streets, some songs be about all of it. Some songs are just raps about raps. Like mm -hmm. I didn't think about it until someone said, Right, are you a Christian rapper? <laughs> and in which I said, I don't know what that is. Like, I, I mean, I guess most of the time you would hear stuff and you would hear things like, you know, God body and, you know what I'm saying? And assalamu alaikum. So you would hear stuff that was clearly Muslim and it was dope. It was hip hop. I had no objections. It just didn't reflect me. As I'm meeting Symphony, I'm meeting Tunnel Rats. It was like, they just sounded like me. Mm. When I saw that, I was like, okay, wait a minute. That's me also. You know what I'm saying? So I was like, okay, I could get with this because Boogie Monsters, another another group that did that, where I was just like, yep. the first lyric on that on on one of the albums, the Underwater album, it was like, God Almighty split the hydrogen in two. Vex took the oxygen, grabbed the mic and blew. I was like, wait, yeah. what? Yep. Like, are you serious? Change it to a tornado, <laughs> make the devil play though. I was like, dog, you, you okay? So to me, I was like, I'm in. You know, it they, mm. that gave me permission and think in some ways to lean in a little more because again, right. as you look around at, at the rest of hip hop, nobody else embarrassed. Nobody mm. nobody else <laughs> hold it back. You know what I'm saying? So I was like, all right, we're a mega crew of West Coast Christians. So that's how I viewed it forever. You yeah. Know? What was your like family's experience or reaction to seeing you take on this art? And it becoming more and more a part of who you were. Oh, they loved it, man. They were, my family was always supportive because the alternative 
Hmm. was awful and also like I, you know I was in college like I was a straight A student you know what I'm saying like I went to college you know what I'm saying like I, I had a job I wasn't out here like on the struggle bus when it came to like I wasn't sitting on nobody's couch like I was working you know I didn't hmm. so I didn't have no like delusions of grandeur you know what I'm saying so they were like yo he's responsible he's a good man we love it that's dope so was going to college like how did you go through the process of picking where you were going to go and what you were going to study there uh, I studied illustration and intercultural studies. So like drawing and culture. So for me, it was like, oh, no brainer. That's exactly what I was going to do. Like, I kind of already knew that. I just had no picture of a career. Like, I just knew if I'm going to go to college, I'm going to enjoy it. I just don't, I don't know what this job's going to be, but I was kind of never really motivated. Like, you know, when you'd go to um, your college counselor and they would say stuff like, hey, if you take this job, you'd make this much a year. And I'm like, okay, cool. But I don't want to do that though. Like I don't, why would I take a job that I don't like? You know what I'm saying? So to mm-hmm. me, I was like, well, I want to do something I like and I'll figure out how to make money from it later. Mm. There's an obvious interesting shift at some point that happens from you pursuing this degree and and getting a degree in like design in this like illustrative yeah. world and cultural studies and what you end up doing <laughs> uh, with those, yeah. at least in some ways. I mean, I'm sure there's some intersection yeah. too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When does it go from, I don't know what I'm doing at the guidance counselor's office or the, you know, the academic yeah. advisor to yeah. what ends up becoming the thing that you do? Uh, Pixar. Really? The, the, the birth of Pixar. That meant Disney fired 40% of their illustrators. So when you can have a great portfolio but not next to somebody who drew the Lion King. Like, what you go do? You know what I'm saying? I could have get work. And just to be clear, you're not saying that you worked at Disney. You're saying that the ripple effect of that merger was so extreme. Yeah, the, it, the market was full. Like, y- mm-hmm. you have guys with the Little Mermaid in their portfolio out of work. Wow. They're trying to get hired. So I'm like, I can't compete with mm-hmm. this. You know, and it was around that time that like some tours started happening. So I was doing music at the time, not enough to make a career. So I floated a little bit. Then I, uh, my cultural studies stuff got me like pretty good with like education. So I taught high school for a little bit. And for a while, I thought that's what it was going to be. And then from there, one day, like in my classroom, my little phone rang for a gig and then it just never stopped ringing. (laughs) And like, that was just it. You know what I mean? I was, you know, weekend warrior, uh, you know, doing songs here and there. We had already put out all them tunnel rat records, but I was teaching the whole time. And then uh, hmm. once the phone started ringing, then the opportunity to be like, okay, I have enough money saved. There's enough of demand. Let's try to hit the road, you know? There's something I got to ask. Like, there's something surprisingly simple, again, about your approach or like not having the sense of striving that a lot of artists tend to have when they're just like agonizing over being able to do this particular thing. Like in your case, you were like, Oh, door closed. You know, looks, looks like the market for illustrators have dried up. Let's go teach. Oh, look, I got some opportunities that are book up. Let's go do that. What do you think accounts for that? Cause I mean, do you see the difference between that kind of almost laissez faire approach and how oftentimes people who are pursuing art can oftentimes just really be in agony about being able to do it full time? Oh, I was in agony. 
<laughs> like, don't, don't get it twisted. You know, I was miserable in okay. a few of those times. Okay. But I think being in LA, you just have no delusions of grandeur. Uh, like, in the sense that, like, in in my mind, I'm like, this is just dope. It might not work. Mm. I'm not delusional. Mm. You know what I'm saying? But absolutely, of course, it's what I wanted. You know what I'm saying? Gotcha. But I just, I'm just, I just wasn't foolish. You know what I'm saying? So, no, 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 no. Okay, okay. No, I was stressed. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Got uh, it. Now, yeah. by, by the time I get to see you, you've met others. There's a group of you doing this type of thing. Yeah. How did that come together? Yeah, man. So, I think I meet the guys from this crew called LA Symphony first. So, I meet them. Uh, this, there was this band called Glory. And then that's when I meet also... Uh, who becomes Ah Thomas, you know, who we later on start Humble Beast with. But this is way earlier, 2000, 2001. That's when I realized that there are other, because I I existed solely in just underground, you know, and LA didn't have, at least as far as I knew of, a Christian scene. Mm -hmm. We're not a Bible Belt state. So like, there were no cross movements and you know, what should you rap at a church? Serious? <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Just didn't happen. We rapped at ours, but it wasn't like we were putting on events. It was just us downstairs. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I meet those dudes and then come to find out, yeah, across the country and in other places, churches do have like skate parks. And for me, I was like, yo, what? What? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like not knowing. I remember being at blowed and seeing you know lpg and the tunnel rats who i eventually you know become a part of that crew like when i was a teenager and just hearing like journey rap and be like that's pretty sure what he just said is from matthew anybody <laughs> else catch that but like i'm pretty sure that's from matthew you know what i'm saying so i'm blown away that like yo this is this whole world of dudes who like man they put out records and i was like yo this is fresh you know so then eventually i do a show out in the valley where i open for tunnel rats you know me and dirt who used to made most of the production we went to college together so we met he was an art major also i want to say like most david Karras one had a show and we were outside freestyling mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying and and then dirt's from my hood too and he was just like yo listen to this tape and he gave me a, a tape of tunnel rats you know and I was just like, this can't be real. Like, this is so crazy, you know? So then I just kind of started getting down. We started writing songs and then we started traveling and that, and then that's when I like got exposed to lamp mode across right. a lot of the stuff that you kind of knew of, but all that to me was so foreign, you know, but I didn't know that the dudes that were older to me out here had history, like in knew this all this was going on with things like crewvention and all that stuff that was all before my time. Mm. That's kind of where me and you started crossing paths. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what it was like once you get that call, right? And and the calls mm. just kept coming. Was that was that a part of Tunnel Rats at that point? We had kind of like ran that ran its course for a while. Okay. Like we had okay. done this like like uh all those uprock albums. Yeah. So those had those had run their course we had these dope opportunities with like KRS-One and like the Warp Tour. And a lot of those things just kind of either just didn't really pan out the way we planned or just kind of wasn't ever what they promised. You know what I mean? And at the time, you know, I was the youngest member. So I still had a lot of like, I still had a lot of like, you know, gas in the tank. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Where a lot of the other ones were like, 
it is what it is. We we did it. You know what I mean? And uh, so I was like, well, I, shoot, I'm not done. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I started trying my hand on solo stuff. You know what I mean? Because all of that was like crew stuff. And uh, and then the solo stuff started working. But, you know, you're still part of the team. So I was still getting most of my production and recording space was still out of the sort of Tunnel Rat sort of collective. And then basically when I like really struck out on my own was when Mia Ah Thomas reconnected. Because I had known Thomas way before I did the Tunnel Rat stuff. Once we reconnected was the beginnings of like the stuff that ended up taking off the Humble Bee stuff. So like the Art Ambidextrous, the Excellent, Crimson Chord, Crooked, all that. All that stuff happened pretty much after most of the, the original Tunnel Rat run. Got it. And it was after I started trying to do more solo stuff and realizing how un sort of self-contained I was, like how much help I actually needed, you know, and being able to see like, let me find somebody like-minded with this type of hustle that still got the gas in his tank. And and me and Thomas just immediately reconnected and bonded. Yeah. And is that the inception of Humble Beast? It is. At a pizza shop in Fullerton. It's one of those names that as soon as you see it, you go, ooh, like you you, you love yeah. the tension and you get it. Yeah. So break it down a little bit, how y'all arrived at it and what Humble Beast means to you. It was, uh, rest in peace, our homeboy Citizen Aim. He passed away from cystic fibrosis, but hmm. I think I think he coined it. It's either him or Thomas. I can't remember exactly who, but one of them coined it. And it was just, we weren't seeing in the marketplace what we needed. And whether it was mentality, theologically, artistically, we just weren't seeing it. You know what I'm saying? To where we come from the underground, very aggressive, in your face, whether it was our, the way we rap, the style of rap, whatever it was, but also our posture was still one that like was, you know, attempting to walk the way of Jesus. You know what I mean? (laughs) And we were trying to, you know, how do we express that tension? This is real hip hop. We're not compromising there, but we're also not compromising in our character as to like how we want to like, you know, esteem others higher than themselves. And, you know, first shall be last, last shall be first. Like that's how we carry ourselves. And this is the music we make. Mm, that's great. So at what point do you realize, wow, this this label, because obviously it doesn't just become you on it, but it grows, incorporates other artists. At what point do you realize, man, we've made something that's a, a cultural. I mean, that's credit to Odd Thomas, really. Okay. That's credit to Thomas and Braille mostly, man. Mm-hmm. Braille had already ran another couple labels. And when it took flight was when they partnered up and um kind of like really like put their both their strengths together. Mm-hmm. And my desire really was like, I just want to be an artist. Like I really don't want to run a label. But <laughs> I know that like I know since I was a founder, you know what I'm saying? Like I had a bit of a say. So as we were gathering like teammates, like I spoke into a lot of the like choices of who we were bringing on, but really like the steering of the ship into where we kind of like caught a wave was really them, man. You know, um, so I can't, I can't really take a lot of credit for that. But as that was happening was as like my sort of like star was kind of rising. So whether it was through poetry, through the excellent record I wrote, really what happened was like, their sound was so different. Their production sound was just so unique as to what was being offered in the world, you know, at the time. Cause, you know, at this time, like Reach was 
was starting to like, you know, take over the world, but they were Southern boys. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like we didn't sound like that. You know what I'm saying? So I think we just offered this other sound, but with the same sort of like quality mm. that we just offered just a, another sort of choice. And we did it with like, you know, fourth of the budget, <laughs> but also one thing that's really, I I can't believe I forgot about this part was we were ahead of the streaming curve. Mm. We were giving away our albums. So this was 2009 and it was like, you give us your email, we'll give you the album. You know, this is before streaming. And this was during the download time. Thomas had the wherewithal to be like, we had to give away the records because in five years, you're not going to be able to sell a record. So wow. let's give it away, you know, and let that be like the, the thing freely given. Like we're going to freely give the way Christ freely gave to us. You know what I'm saying? So as a mission and as a business model, give away the records. So when you do that, I mean, you can still go buy it. Like it's still up for sale, but you can also just give us your email. So at that point, you know, you do that within three albums, you got a, you know, four or $500,000 e-newsletter list, you know what I'm saying? 500,000 folks. Plus when you count that with like the sales on iTunes, so our records are hitting number one on iTunes and they're being given. So with Excellent, it was like, Excellent I did during the Unashamed tour in 2012. I mean, that record that record hit number two, you know, with like 30,000 purchases, but 150,000 downloads. So, you know, the first week was 180,000 copies. You know what I'm saying? On an independent label, you know what I'm saying? With no marketing. So we poked through because of this story, you know, and I think that Again, that's credit to Thomas, man. That is so, I, I just got to pause to say a record label whose model is giving away the one yeah. product that the record label is known for. Like, <laughs> that's why you call it a record label. That is yep. so countercultural, so revolutionary in its thinking that it would sound nuts if it wasn't actually steeped in the fact that the one thing that Christ offers as the son of man is, I'm going to give you my life. It's free. It's free. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. There's like the, the theology of it was so beautiful. Again, I can't stress this enough. I can't take credit for that. That was Thomas. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I know a lot of times publicly, because I was like the biggest right. artist, people thought a lot of it was me. I was like, yeah, bro, no, it's them. You know what I mean? But that was the inception. But I, I can't also stress enough the brilliance of the fact that now, Every label gives away their music. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like the the fact that he was he knew it. You know what I'm saying? Mm. And I'm like, that was so smart that you're going to have to figure out other ways to monetize. Yeah. Like we didn't know streaming was coming. Mm. You know what I'm saying? But we definitely knew that you ain't gonna be able to buy no right. record. I feel like it would be incomplete, especially since we had the good Dr. Alma on here. If I didn't just at least ask yeah. one question about her and her in your journey. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about um, Dr. Alma, who's been on the show and your relationship and that part of yeah. who you are as prop. That is an expression man. of who she is. Yeah. Dude, refer to her by her prefix, man. <laughs> She's amazing, man. Like, like I said, y'all had her on the show before. The way that she challenges me is is a way that no one else ever has you know because usually like you know i'm a performer like you know i'm the most interesting guy in the room you know <laughs> until until she's in the room 
you know, and like mm. it's been so mm. dope because <laughs> one, when it's just us that like, I'm like, she's, she just has a way of piercing through, you know, mm. in a way that like terrifies me, but also I'm like, Ooh, I like it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, I, I like that. So yeah, she's been that iron that sharpens the iron. She's been the challenge. She's been my humbler. She's also been my, you know, biggest advocate, you know, somebody who's, who's like, you know, as brilliant as she is, she's a person of very few words. Her actions prove it. You know what I'm saying? She's not the one to give you the, like the, the pep talk, but she's the one to just kind of like look you in the face and be like, well, I got you. Just go do it. You know what I'm saying? And like, <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Okay. I'll just go do it. You know what I'm saying? But yeah, dude, it's been, it's been such a great thing, man. You know, she brings the best out of me and like any marriage, she also bring the worst out of you. You know what I'm saying? But, uh, nah, dude, she's my North star, man. And like, yeah, so many ideas, even through, even in the book or in my life, like, you know, a lot of those originate from her just telling me about something she's been reading, you know what I mean? Or something that has come up in where she's challenged me in my theology, in my relationship, in my communicating style. You know what I mean? It's been dope, dude. There you go. And I and I say Dr. Alma because I the Zaragoza Petty, I I know I don't got that I got I don't got that like Zaragoza, yeah. You ain't got yeah. it yet. But hey, <laughs> whenever somebody gets their doctorate, I, I want to put some respect on their name for sure because for sure, that's man. well earned. All right, well, I'm gonna leave you yep. on this one. Uh Terraform. What does it yeah. mean? And tell us a bit about it. Yeah, so Terraform is a book expressed in four parts, poetry book that has four musical EPs and a cold brew. <laughs> right. But the term <laughs> It's complicated. The term it's complicated. But the word comes from science fiction. It's the process of when you find a planet and the process of making that planet livable. It's called terraforming. And so the creative idea was like, well, what if we thought about the planet we're on now as a terraforming experiment, right? Because if you're looking around, it's getting less and less livable. But what if it's not just the physical planet, but also our cultures, our communities, our families, and ultimately ourselves as terraforming projects, right? Um, so it's about building that livable world and imagining a better future. You know, you terraform, you build the world you're trying to live in. You build, you terraform your relationships, terraform, you know what I'm saying? So that was kind of the idea. And so it's a it's poetry and short story as a book. And then there's four albums that are named after the sections of the book, the sky, the soil, the people, and the possibility. And then out of that is a canned cold brew called Terraform Cold Brew Coffee. That's cool. Now, with that, there's something in that that sounds a lot like the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus prays, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Exactly. Do you see that? connection and is that a, like expression of what we see as a, a, a realized eschatology of like what we're supposed to be doing terraforming yeah hmm. i don't think i have ever put it in those words hmm. but as you're saying it i'm like yeah that's uh that's very close to what i was thinking about you know what i'm saying i'm like this is the better future that we know is really possible that is clearly like the space we're existing in it's almost like this can't possibly be it 
right but it's what we're in yeah. you feel me and a lot of times that space is created by the choices we made in the way that we see ourselves you know what i'm saying yeah. in the stories we tell yeah. ourselves so if that's the case then we should tell better stories This is where you're from. I'm Rasul Berry. And remember, it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. This show was produced by Ryan Clevenger, Mary Jo Clark, and Jade Gussman, and was engineered by Kevin Burgess. Also want to thank Caleb and Kino for their help in supporting and promoting where you're from. Thanks, y'all. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries.